Hello and welcome to the Tillage Edge with me, Michael Hennessy. This is your regular update for all your tillage news and advice. Ireland is known across the world for a love of potatoes and also for the huge impact the potato famine had on the country's population and national psyche. Potato blight was one of the main causes of the famine and is still problematic today. The national potato production is now largely grown by a few hundred specialist growers, but the problem of potato blight is ever present in their management of the crop. A grower typically needs to invest close to 13,000 euros per hectare to grow each hectare of potatoes. The financial risks are huge, but the grower will try to ensure these risks are minimized in order to maximize returns. On the other side of the equation, there is significant pressure to reduce the use of chemical fungicides used on potato crops. The cost of these fungicides are quite significant and growers will welcome any tool which will help to minimize fungicide use, but while also protecting the potato crop. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Stephen Kilday, a researcher in Chagas, and Carla Finkla, Head of Agricultural Meteorology at Metairn, to discuss how potato blight forecasting has developed over the past number of years and how it can help farmers in 2022. Clara, I first want to ask you about what sort of services Metairn supply to the industry in general. Metairn's mission is to monitor, analyze and predict the weather and climate and provide a range of high quality meteorological related information. So that includes the public as well as any industry that has a need for any weather related um, information. And we have, of course, our, our public website. We also have a commercial website that when we deliver large data sets to paid customers, specialized customers, they can do that via a spe- specific website. We have, of course, the radio and the national media, as well as local media. Any of the local uh, radio stations get our forecast, a tailored forecast for their area. And then there is, there's a telephone consultancy service for specific industries like the film industry. We have an awful lot of requ- uh, requests from them or the racing board, the horse racing board have a, a large consultancy with us. And then there's the gritting for road eyes. So the safety aspect. Um, yeah, so there is, there is quite a lot. And for instance, Chagas graph growth modeling output and the measurements from uh, LOD's model is displayed on the RTE Sunday farming forecast on RTE. So there's a wealth of information and different platforms like the websites, the traditional radio, the television, Twitter, and so on. And Clara, we, you obviously, and, and we'll get into this a little bit later on in terms of the work that um, Metairn and Chagas are jointly doing together around Blight, because that's kind of where we're, where we're here. But is there any other work that you were doing t- with industry specifically where you're kind of working jointly with them in terms of research projects and developing models or developing specific data sets that um, is, is of particular relevance to that industry? There is there's a huge wealth of um, collaborations. For instance, in terms of international, the IPCC pro, um, uh, report, we then look at what that means for Ireland nationally. So we translate that a bit. And there is a, a project, a large project called Translate that produces climate scenarios specifically for Ireland and standardizes. So that's one. And then of course, with the EPA, we work on different projects on, for instance, atmospheric dispersion. 
that is to do with foot and mouth, airborne dispersion for the mouth disease. Also, blue tongue has an airborne component. And there is also radio protection, like if we have a radiological um, accident. And then the moment we have a, um, a service for Ukraine, if there's any radioactive accident or incident in the Ukraine, what does that mean for us in Ireland? So yes, there is, and, and, and with DAFM, we have Department of Agriculture, Food and Marine, we have projects on the forest fire risk. They are the issuing authority on the fire danger notices, but we provide them with a the meteorological input and we run a fire weather index model for them. And then we provide also the ACMED unit within the research division provides um, DAFM with an Emotodiris report in the spring, which we just issued. And then in the autumn, liver fluke. So there's a wealth of, of different aspects. Okay. So what so what we see in the TV, I suppose, and, and, and a bit on the um on your website, which is all very good, it's probably just the tip of the iceberg. And you're you're from what I from what I'm hearing from you, you're very much uh, no more than Chagas is very much a science-based organization. That's it all hinges around that. Yes. And I I don't I didn't even go into any of the projects in terms of the numerical weather prediction. There is a wealth of information there. And we just joined um some European colleagues to run combined our models together for over a large area and then combine computer resources because each individual country can't afford such big computers anymore. So there, there's like four or five of these countries combined um, to a weather center and we run them together. I do I, I do remember that. I think that made the news about six months yes. ago. Where, where yes, exactly. UW West is called, yes. Yes, I do. Yeah. Stephen, can I um, just bring you in there? Because we're, we're really here to talk about potatoes and talk about potato blight and the interaction between uh, Chagas Research and 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 Metair and, and uh, as regards how the predictions are going. But maybe just before we start, just maybe for some of the, um, the listeners who might be as familiar with potatoes, what's the level of potatoes growing in the country now and what sort of yields are there, are farmers producing now? I suppose at, at the moment we're probably just under 10,000 uh, hectares every year of, of potatoes. Um, and they're given, I suppose, uh, just under under four hundred thousand tons. So there, there's quite a good yield, and uh, they're yielding quite well. Just, I suppose, between forty and fifty tons in most commercial crops. Of course, it's going to depend on the type of variety and and, and things like that. But definitely, there's, I suppose, a, a small a small area of it, but they're quite intensive and in producing good crops. And as you say, it is a much smaller area now than it was maybe a hundred years ago. But has that been partially offset? Or maybe totally offset by the increase in yields. Where were the yields a hundred years ago, ago in comparison to today? Oh, there would have been a fraction of what we would have been would we be getting now. Uh, being honest, you could be ten to fifteen ton if you would be if you're lucky. Um, being honest, it, it partly I suppose a hundred years ago we probably were eating a bit more potatoes, probably a bit more of the diet. Being honest, but definitely the production in terms of how we produce them and the, and the yields that we get uh, and the change of variety, of course, uh, higher yielding varieties have had a, a big impact on offsetting the, the area that is is under potatoes. Okay. And obviously the, the, the association with potatoes and blight is quite big. Is it as much a problem today, Stephen, as it would have been, you know, we can all go back to the famine times, I suppose, but even hundred years ago when, when we maybe got on top of it a little bit more, but is it still very, very problematic? 
as a disease itself, it is as problematic. And you could, you might even argue that the, the the strains of blight, and we might get into that in a few minutes. The strains of blight that are here at the moment are actually more aggressive than they were a hundred years ago, or hundred and seventy or seventy-five odd years ago. Um, how we manage it and how we control it is different, uh, and that is, I suppose, that has taken a lot of the pressure off uh, blight as a, a major problem. But as a disease itself, it's as problematic, if not more. And in terms of that being problematic, Stephen, in terms of yield penalty, is it obviously again you go back to the farm and again you go back to that one? But they had black nothing basically when when blight came in. Would it be the same today? If we left potatoes untreated in the wrong season, we would have no marketable yield. Uh, I think the one year where, in the trials perspective, that stands out is 2012, where we had zero marketable yield. You be, we we had tubers, but they were like marbles. And and how come then the varieties and variety breeding and 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 all that end of it that we haven't managed to, I suppose, breeding resistance to the, to, to the blight? This is a very sort of a difficult one because we we can breed resistance to blight, and there are varieties that are very good against it. I suppose when we look at uh, the market and we look at the varieties that are there, they're dominated by varieties that are quite susceptible. Now, we have to look at other traits uh, in terms of those potatoes that we, are, we are, are consuming. And unfortunately, at the moment, we're probably not reaching the quality or, and, and things like that in terms of varieties that have that resistance. The potential is definitely there. But I, I think it's it's where the market is. We have to bring the market or those varieties to the market and make sure that we're able to, to sell them. Um, it is a case of a farmer isn't going to go grow a, a variety of potatoes if they cannot sell it. Mm. So I suppose when you're talking, what you're talking about there is that the variety needs to look pretty and the right colour and the right shape and the right density and the right dry matter and together it's pretty tricky. These are from from the breeder's perspective. These are major traits. Basically, you put a variety into a store. You want to be able to take the exact same variety out and the same exactly those same traits that you say of. So blight is only one component of what the breeders are looking for. Um, and of course, if we can control blight in in other means, then a lot of major emphasis will go on those other traits. Okay. So what you're saying then really is blight is problematic disease resistance isn't wonderful so i presume then farmers are forced to protect their crops each year unfortunately that is the case uh, and it is a case that we could have 15 to maybe 20 uh, applications of a fungicide on a potato crop in any given year and of course the big thing is it's all going to depend on the weather and and that's really what drives potato blight so if we have potatoes going into the ground i suppose over the last month they'll be starting to merge uh, around this time and of course, look, if there is blight around and the conditions are favourable to it, farmers will have to protect those crops. And that means protecting from this stage through to harvest. Um, and that is a long time. Blight, I suppose, is kind of to a degree like the, like the COVID virus a little bit. It's a bit of an arms race kind of thing. It keeps changing, keeps moving, keeps... It's a moving target, if you like, to try and control that. And, and there are a lot of strains, I believe, on that. Where is the current... Where are the strains currently? Are they really problematic at the moment or... What's the, how is it shaking out at the moment? In, in, indeed, look, blight is, I suppose, when we talk about blight, Phytophthorin festans is the pathogen itself. And it, it tends to be what we say clonal. So it tends to be really related to itself in terms of there might be a small number of different strains throughout the, uh, throughout the country. Similar to the COVID, as you described, we had our Delta, we have our Omicron. In blight, we have, there's a, a sort of a name and scheme would be put on it. It's called EU8037 or so like this in terms of the different genotypes where we're at at the moment we're we're 
almost at a sort of a point where we're seeing a displacement of the population again. We saw the displacement maybe 12 years ago and we had some major impacts um, where we had what was coming through called the strains called Blue 13 and Pink 6. They had a big impact into how we actually control blight. And now we're also seeing around in the last couple of years, we're starting to see another shift or another change in the population. Um, and one of those has is having a big impact, uh, a strain called uh, 37A2, EU 37A2, and that has resistance to fluoxetine. Um, so that is having a big impact in terms of how farmers are going to control their crops into the future. And, and Stephen, does it really matter necessarily in terms of which one is out there? They're all hard to control one way or the other. And, and do we need to predict what's out there or how infectious they're going to be? It, it's, it's really important that actually we, we, I suppose, are able to predict it and have some idea that, that is out there. I think the, the best example is that sort of blue 13 that arose in 2008. Before that, we had quite a stable population um, and we had grown, I suppose, accustomed to it. So we were able to manage it. We, we sort of knew what its strengths were. We knew where its weaknesses were. Um, we knew what temperatures, I suppose, was ideal for it, etc. So we had built up sort of a bank of information that we were able to, I suppose, tackle it in a certain way. All of a sudden, a new strain comes in. And it could sort of upset those balances. Um, and in the case of Blue 13, it, ha- it had fluoxetine, or not fluoxetine, it had metal axle resistance. So straight away, we had to play a bit of catch up there. So being able to predict it um, and being able to predict the disease is, is vitally important. Carly, can I bring you back in here now? Because I think this is certainly where I met here and we're, we're, we're trying to um, feed into the system. In terms of the late blight forecasting system that was in place, up till now, you might maybe go back a little bit uh, in, in history and you might maybe describe to us the origins of that and, and how the system was, was operating all the way up to today. Yes, it goes back to Austin Burke in the 1950s, um, where he, through some small data amounts, um, came up with this relationship of the relative humidity above 90, 90% and temperature above 10 degrees and the sporulation of 12 hours, that then we would get into a situation where there could be blight after having 12 hours, another 12 hours of effective blight hours, and then the risk increases. And that's when Medeiron issues blight warnings. And that's how it's been since 1953. So it hasn't changed then until a couple of years ago with Chagas, we, we had this um, PhD project on developing and looking at temperature and relative humidity and, and weather data if that, you know, the potatoes have changed. So we now have implemented in Medeiron these updated rules from the outcome of the research in, at Chagas with the field trials. Stephen, as Clara, Clara mentioned there, um, you, you've been working with Medeiron in, in terms of trying to I suppose, make the tools a bit more specific in terms of the blight um, uh, forecasting. Is that related to a specific project or how did that come about? Yeah, so this came about actually uh, as part of the Department of Agriculture funded project called EPIC, establishing a platform for integrated pest management in, in, in Ireland. And I suppose we we decided that we'd look at a number of, I suppose, sort of possible sort of decision supports or risk prediction models uh, and see, could we bring them up to speed and almost use them as a framework for, for other future models? Um, and of course, look, late blight is the one that stood out. And we, we had a model, as Clara sort of said, from the 1950s, 
we've seen major changes in production uh, and of course the changes in the population and I suppose it was a, it was a valid question to ask how relevant is that um, that model currently so as part of the the project uh, with Metern and, and Minute we had we had a PhD student basically taking some of the data from uh, Chagask in terms of outbreak of diseases, but also then some of the detailed weather data that we have on site. And it was a case of actually, look, rerunning the models, teasing it out, seeing could we, I suppose, do does subtle changes in the forecast, can it predict better? Um, and it, there was some subtle changes that could actually be made to it. And um, one, of course, was the, the relative humidity, a slight reduction in relative humidity, but also then in the, the accumulation of the effective blight hours and in changing what previously was just relative rainfall to also include relative humidity, because we know that it isn't the case, it isn't always the case that you need to have uh, rainfall to have actually some uh, level of dampness in the crop. Um, so we included relative humidity in, in that aspect. And these subtle changes did have a, a big impact in terms of, I suppose, the amount of predictions that would come through or amount of warnings that would come through. But I think when we look back at the original sort of um, forecast, it was extremely conservative. Um, it was highlighting really, really high pressure sort of situations. But there would have been quite a few uh, sort of periods where it, it probably missed um, sort of uh, times where you might actually regard, well, actually, this feels a bit blighty, if you know what I mean. Um, and that's probably a reflection, not, uh, it's probably a reflection on the time where actually we really did, we didn't have a huge amount of tools to uh, combat blight. So you really wanted to get absolute, those absolute sort of periods that were really going to be important. Um, now we know we're in a different sort of scenario. The cost that is associated with uh, blight and the risk that is associated is much greater. And therefore, we probably need uh, some more warnings and, and try to identify a bit more of the periods that are actually going to be conducive to blight, even if it's, I suppose, uh, maybe not that huge, big, massive blight sort of weather. Um, and that's important from a commercial grower sort of perspective. And, and Stephen, did that include quite a few field trials over years in different locations or, or how... How, how, can, how can we be confident, I suppose, that that if I'm a grower and I'm after spending, geez, I don't know what it is today's, it's well over 10,000 euros a hectare on putting in potatoes, so it's a huge risk, that what we are talking about here will work? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so the work was conducted on, I suppose, the, the data from the breeding program, the outbreaks of the, uh, blight, and also then the weather data. But alongside that, we did conduct uh, a, a number of field trials where we looked at a number of factors, actually. It wasn't just the, the, the blight prediction, but we, we also included varietal resistance um, and change in dose depending on the, 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 the level of blight sort of risk that was there. So we have some good data. We've generated some very good data to say that actually, look, there is a, we, we can sort of predict better in terms of that sort of uh, risk period or forecast better in terms of the risk period it is there. What I would say is that at the moment, look, we're, we're sort of saying, okay, get familiar with this. This is, it's not a complete sort of system to, to sort of take away from, look, having knowledge, what, where your field is, where the risk is, what variety and things like this. But it will provide information on terms of, look, what the weather is like. Is it going to be conducive to blight? Um, and also what is coming through in terms of the, the forecast is that previously it would have been just that warning. It is blight risk is there. It's also providing now an idea level of that risk. Um, and of course, stock where there's absolutely no risk, where it's uh, zero blight, effective blight hours, it is going to be quite low. 
but it is going to be then a case that over like as the as I suppose farmers become more familiar with it, they will actually start to see, I suppose, what's relevant for them in terms of um whether it's changing dose or maybe uh, prolonging a, a spray interval or things like this. So Clara, can I bring you back there? So with all the information that, that Stephen and his uh, PhD student came up with, how have MetAaron plugged that into their existing system to, to, to take account of all those, you know, the changes, I suppose? What we actually produce now is a website with the, the output from our numerical weather prediction model and apply the blight model to that input data from the numerical weather prediction model. So you actually on the website have a six day forecast for a number of locations and you can see what the prediction for rainfall is and the relative humidity and the temperature, these three controlling factors for blight. And then there's also a spatial map that gives you an idea how, but this is model data. So this is not observation data. This is model data forward into time, like on day three, four and five, for the, the farmers to see where are the risky areas. Because blighty weather is a warm front. So a warm front comes through and it depends on how long it stays before the associated cold front comes along and then clears out with fresher, cooler, drier conditions. So how long does it stay? In the past, from my own experience as a forecaster, often you would say there's blight conditions from say Monday to, to, to Thursday, but then the, the warm front stalls and then it stays around for much longer. So then it kind of like you have to watch it. And that give the, the, the new products on our web, external website will give the farmers direct access to be able to watch that on day three, four and five, as well as specific locations like on three hourly intervals. So they can actually see the progression of the warm front themselves because the other thing is with the, the numerical wealth prediction and the, the six-day forecast that's there is based on a deterministic run. There's also something called the ensemble and Medera now produce rainfall risk maps. So the probability of rainfall. And that is what we'll aim to do, say for next year or the year after, to actually have a risk map based on not just one forecast, but on those 51 ensemble runs of ECMWF that we can give a more accurate assessment of the risk because the risk of potato blight at this moment is based on one model simulation. So the next step forward would be to use more input data to see the breadth of say relative humidity because it's a threshold. If it's above 88, it's blight. If it's slightly below that and the models can be slightly out in timing or in the relative humidity. So to take that risk, the risk of the, the meteorological data into account as well. So that's going to be the next project. Okay. So if uh, maybe I have a completely wrong end of the stick here, but it, 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 in terms of the modeling um, that, that that's done to predict what's going on in the future, that does that take into account the what's happened in the past and how that's kind of developed, if you like, in the past to project forward into the future? And I suppose really my question is, if I'm correct in saying that, is that general in terms of the general um, uh, data that you would get from, from a number of different stations, or is that more specific and local? So you come up with that, that general prediction on a more local basis. Okay, there's two levels here. 
what you're talking about, I think what you're aiming at is the numerical weather predictions. Like how do we come up with a prediction for rain, wind, temperature, the basic meteorological aspects. And then we apply the new potato light model and then give you a, a deterministic, a, a, like a determined risk of potato blight. Now, in terms of the meteorological data, yes, that is very much, there is all the data from around the world, satellite, um, ascents, uh, aircraft data, surface data, ocean data, gets all put together and assimilated to give you the correct initial conditions and then a forward prediction. So yes, everything is based on observations at some stage, and then that gets then run with a computer model forward in time. Okay, I can see why you need the very big computer in fairness. Yes, you do, you do, you do. Well, it's actually in Holland and in, in Iceland, I think. Okay, okay. Stephen, can I come back to you just for a second in terms of, so if I'm a, let's just say a potato grower in Mead, and um, I, I'm on a, a, a routine of applying the um, blight protection to my crops maybe once a week, as would normally be the case, but looking at the new weather prediction, it's kind of telling me that, look, there's really no blight in the forecast all the way out for, you know, five or six days past uh, when I'm due to go back and, and apply that blight protection spray again. Is, is that kind of, how, how does the grower view that or how does the grower practically use this information? I suppose there's, there's two things, Michael. The first is that this is not going to tell the grower if there's blight in the crop. So there will have to go out and monitor that. And, and things will change based on, look, if there's, if there's blight there, if there's blight there, then you're going to be a scenario where you can't sort of take the risk of not spraying. Um, so it, it's more about giving information and, and allowing them to help them help them make decisions, I should say. Um, so it's a case on for the moment, what I would be saying, look, for growers to get familiar with it, to see what's there. Would I be changing immediately from that strategy of going maybe uh, from that seven day where they're on a seven day uh, sort of sort of spray regime? At the moment, I wouldn't. But what I would say is keep an eye on it, look on it, get familiar with it, because it's going to be about a learning for them to actually be familiar and sort of say, look, yeah, uh, clearly there was very low, uh, low risk predicted, and I can clearly see that low risk occurred. And over time, as they build up that confidence, it will be a case of actually then, look, how do we approach it? The, the, the sort of the, the website itself and, and what Matern are providing, it won't say to reduce or it won't say to stretch an interval, but this is, this is where we would be looking at it and sort of saying, okay, if there is a real low prediction of blight, you've no blight in your field, then is a case actually, look, can you either reduce what you're putting on in terms of fungicide of that application, or can you stretch that interval? Um, and that's really going to come down, I suppose, to the, the aspect of the grower in terms of their system, but also then the location or the amount of blight that might be in that area. Okay. I suppose it's, it does come down to, you know, we are on a path, I suppose, of uh, reducing pesticides or I suppose the need to reduce pesticides over time, I suppose, for two reasons, one from legislation, but also from the point of view of um, consumer sentiment, I suppose, would like less. And you, would you see this as, as playing a, a role or a part in that? Absolutely. Look, this is where this is what the whole project, the EPIC project was set out to do. It was integrated pest management and we're using information to control that disease in the most effective manner that we can um, and if it's a case look it, it may be a case that over a summer over the summer months over the potato growing season that actually is all high risk 
and in that scenario, it, it, the applications that are going to be applied are going to be justified. But if it's a case where actually, look, uh, an example might be 2018 or, or early 2020, where actually we had periods of really low risk, a um, couple of weeks of really low risk, then the scenario would be there that actually look, the application, the number of applications or the amount of fungicide that would have been applied could have been reduced. And I think that's where this would provide the confidence for that actually to occur. Clara, just in terms of the prediction, your prediction is, uh, instead of it kind of being more a national one, and now it's kind of a very local one, um, pushing it out over three or four, or maybe even six days. How about a farmer, though, where a farmer in, say, I don't know, a locality in Tipperary, but he's in a sheltered field, and that's where the crops are growing, and it's maybe potentially more prone to blight. How does the model, or does the, can the model account for that at all? Well, the model is based on a nine kilometer gritted data. So it's so every nine kilometers we have a grit point. So we can't really go down to field scale or like the sheltered field. That is really down to the farmer to know what their specific location is like. But there is this general overview over the country that give you the idea of where the warm front actually sits, because it comes back to a warm front, like as you as you said yourself, it feels a bit blighty, and that's basically a warm front coming in. Where does it stall? Where does it go? Does it hang around? Is it slow? Is it slower? Is it faster? You know, so that is usually a fairly widespread phenomena. It's not like a local thing. A warm front comes across. And in in terms of that nine kilometer grid that you talked about, there is that to do with. The resolution that you have or is that to do with um god we have a local weather station there and that's feeding in information about the humidity and all the bits and pieces and we can we can track that and it's given us a, a much better prediction now this is based on the model that is the grid the model is on so all the data the surface data you're thinking of that gets assimilated into the initial conditions for the, this global weather model to run forward in time. And then that runs on roughly a nine kilometer grid at the moment. But these resolutions are constantly improving and there is talk of going to five kilometers. And so, yeah, and our, our own in-house model runs at two and a half kilometers at the moment, but it only runs out to three days. So for potato blight, you really need three days in, three to six days, because that gives you that outlook in terms of maybe changing the applications, uh, the timing or the amount. So you kind of, we do need for blight that two day lead time and then see what the warm front does in three, four, five days time. Okay. I suppose not every disease is necessarily as destructive, I suppose, as blight, but can you see, um, Clara, any other um, future developments where you will be able to help farmers in terms of disease forecasting? Well, I was actually talking to Stephen about septoria and maybe rust or whatever. I rely on Chagask. And in fact, Chagask and Medeiran have started this year a joint research working group to tease out these problems or these, these projects because Chagask are the experts on the farm activities and Midair and are the, the experts on the weather. So combining the two is really the fruitful collaboration we have. So yes, a lot of the diseases are based on weather and similar, you know, moist, warmish conditions. So Stephen, Clara has given you a blank canvas there. So um, <laughs> what, uh, 
what diseases are you going to look at first to make sure that we can actually get on top of those? Yeah, well, actually, uh, one thing that we are doing, another Department of Agriculture project that Chagas were involved in that has been led by UCD is looking at mycotoxin contamination um, in, I suppose, cereal crops. And that's there. Those mycotoxins are, be driven, are driven by fusarium. And of course, fusarium is a wet weather disease of the, of the, the grains or the ears and generally occurs around flowering. So if we were able to predict, um, I suppose, the factors that lead to fusarium, hopefully we would be able to reduce the amount of mycotoxins because we could target sort of uh, control measures specific to those. Of course, it's not just weather, it's the whole interaction of the, the crop, its environment, the agronomy and things like this. But as Clara said, these all need weather. These all are tend to be wet weather diseases. So look, the fusarium is one that is, uh, the project has, has kicked off this year. But of course, look, ideally, we would we'd, we'd like to be looking at a lot more into the future. And look, our big problems, as Clara said, is something like, like septoria um, in wheat and then, of course, ramulary in barley uh, and things like this. So there is it is if we are to, if we are to achieve the goals, I suppose, set out in terms of pesticide reduction, this is actually going to be a, a key component, being able to predict the, the, the disease, because, look, we do need to be able to manage it if disease is going to develop. Um, but Likewise, if it's not going to develop, then we don't need to be applying pesticides. As I was building into what you've already said, Stephen, in terms of integrated pest management and having decision support systems to support the reasons why we don't or maybe even do apply a uh, plant protection product. Absolutely. Uh, Stephen, thank you very much for your time. And Clara as well, thank you very much for, for joining us. And hopefully we'll have you back again shortly to talk about uh, another project that has a, a successful outcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Thanks. So that's all we've time for. My thanks to Stephen and Clara for joining me on the podcast today. And finally, don't forget if you enjoyed the podcast and recommend it to a friend or colleague. And as always, rate, review and follow on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you never miss an episode. And for more information, go to chargis.ie. I'm Michael Hennessy. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with more tillage news and advice.